Well, good morning to those of you here in the room, those of you in your own living rooms or uh, wherever you might be watching. Thank you for uh, being a part of uh, this service this morning. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me one more time to the book of Revelation. Revelation 22 and starting at verse 12 today. Today we complete uh, our own study as a church family of uh, the biblical passages on prophecy. We've only scratched the surface, and while we might be wrapping up our study, I trust that it's kind of launching yours, and that uh, you will use some of the the thoughts that we've been able to talk about here to kind of give you a a compelling reason to think future, always to think future. Strange question, maybe, to start with, but The question is, would you continue to do your job if you didn't get paid? Let's just even say that you had had all the resources you needed to take care of all your needs. Would you keep doing what you do 40, 50 hours a week? Laying brick, doing IT, serving as a nurse. And all God's people said, probably not. (laughs) because we know that pay is motivating. Uh, Pay adds value to what we do. Pay makes us accountable to do a good job. We make sacrifices because our sacrifice will be rewarded by pay and it propels us. If you've been discouraged with serving Christ, if you've been discouraged spiritually, I trust that what we look at today will encourage you as you begin to get a far long view of how Jesus Christ rewards obedience and service. We see a contrast, a twin truths in the passage, particularly where we start in Revelation, and that is this. Salvation is a free gift. Eternal rewards are earned. How does that fit together? Let's take a look as we look first in verse 12 of Revelation 22. Jesus is speaking. Behold, I am coming soon. Amen to that. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Or you may likely have the word work in your scriptures. I'm coming soon, Jesus said, as he revealed this to John. And and it's 900 plus years sooner than it was when he spoke it. So it's very soon. What does Jesus say? He will bring with him when he returns. My reward is with me, and I will give according to what he has done. Wait a minute. Do you mean, Jesus, are you saying that somehow that what we do here on earth will in some way make heaven even better? For us as believers. Is it is it is it possible that somehow as, a, as we look at our own lives, we could receive more or less rewards based on our works. What does he say? 
My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done or his work. Two key words in this passage uh, would probably be these, reward and work. The word reward is the word wage or wages, what you earn. It's used 21 times in the New Testament in the Greek language. Three times it means money earned on earth. Three times it refers to the praise of men that the Pharisees were were going for. And the other 15 times it refers to God rewarding believers. We'll be looking at some of those passages, but not all. And there are many other passages teaching this truth in addition to those that use the word reward. So it's pretty clear it's something about earning something. And the second word is just as clear. According to what he has done, the Greek word is work or works. It's the same word that Paul used in Ephesians 2.9 when he said we are not saved by works. So the very thing that Paul says does not save is that which Jesus says he will reward when he comes back. Are we sure it's Jesus who said this? Verse 13. (laughs) Yes, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end, same way Jesus identified himself at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. All three say basically the same thing, repeating it for emphasis, first, last, alpha, omega, beginning, and he is, Jesus is saying, I am the full authority over all things in the creation because I was the one who started everything. He created all things. And we've seen in the book of Revelation that Jesus says, I have been in full control of history. I'm in full control of all prophecy and future things. And I say, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me. And I'm going to reward people according to what they've done. I hope this is both exciting and sobering. Because if there's anything about prophecy that is personal... It is this. It's that what we are doing now affects what we will experience forever. Exciting? Yeah. Sobering? I think so. This is only for believers, this truth. Very clear, verse 14 and 15. Blessed in this way are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. The new Jerusalem, he's described, that are for believers only. Outside are the dogs, what a description, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's a, it's a, it's a generic description of the the unbelieving, rejecting world. So this is not for them. They're outside. This is for us. Verse 16, Jesus again will describe himself with these very descriptive terms and then contrast how the gift of salvation is not a contradiction to the earning of rewards. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you, John, this testimony for the churches. First mention of the church back since back in chapter 3. But this is all meant for us, believers of this age, first of all. I am the root and the offspring of David, 
So it's also meant for Jews. And here's the third one, the bright morning star, a reference to Jesus. He embraces this term, uh, this, this metaphor of the first star you see in the morning that tells you a new day is coming. And when you think about the last couple chapters of, that we've studied in the book of Revelation, clearly he is thinking about how amazing this new day, and we should not just be living in here, we should be living there, projecting what our eternity would be like. So who gets to be in the new heavens and new earth with that residence as we've studied in New Jerusalem, chapters 21 and 22? Who gets to be there? So he's going back from rewards to say, let's review how you even get to heaven. It's a gospel invitation really here in verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say come. Spirit, capital S, referring to the Holy Spirit, I believe. And the Bride refers to the church, probably historically meaning those believers already in heaven at that time. So, so this invitation comes from the Holy Spirit and Christians who are already in heaven. And they say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I mean, Jesus wanted to make sure we didn't suddenly confuse everything about salvation that we know. And it's interesting to me that in the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus pairs these truths. I'm coming with my reward, which is earned, but it's only for believers. And the only way you can be a believer and be in heaven is as the free gift of eternal life. So come. If you can, if you can hear the gospel, understand you're saved by Christ alone. If you can hear it, come. If you're thirsty, you realize you're in need, you realize you're hung, you're, you are spiritually needy and incapable on your own. And if you simply just want to be with forever with Christ in heaven. So if you hear the gospel and you understand your need and you want to be in heaven, come. On what basis do you get there? Let him take the free gift of the water of life. That's it. Just come. It's free. Same thing he said at the beginning or the introduction to the New Jerusalem in chapter 21, verse 6. Second part of the verse. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. So if you've ever tried to earn your way to heaven, it's very clear. You cannot. The reason you can't is because you could not ever pay the penalty of your sin. And only Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. And you must trust in Jesus. And then he gives it to you. as a, He gives eternal life and forgiveness of sin as a free gift. It's the only way you can have eternal life. Take it the free gift. And he gives it as a gift. No works, no strings attached. In fact, no promise of good works can even be embedded in the simplicity of the true nature of a gift. So this is a contradiction that salvation is free, but rewards are earned. No, because Jesus said them right here, back to back, so we could understand it. So I just want to try to make it as clear as possible using a little chart here, perhaps. So this is your life, okay? It's your life here, and it's your life in heaven. But it's all you. 
So that line is your life, okay? So your life here begins when you're born, ends when you die. And what God's word is saying to each of us is that during this lifespan, we have a responsibility to respond to the offer of eternal salvation through Jesus. So at some point, we need to be saved from the penalty of our sin. That's what the term saved means, saved from the penalty. And so the ongoing message throughout this first season of life is that we must hear, understand our need, thirsty, and then we can take of the water of life. How? So the message to everyone throughout the first season of life is to believe in Jesus because he died on the cross for your sin. There's nothing else you can say, nothing else you can do that will matter until you've done that. And that begins eternal life for you. Eternal life does not start when you die. It starts when you believe. And you are guaranteed uh, a, the permanent transformation as a new creature in Christ, the child of God. You are as saved as you'll ever be because eternal life in heaven is a free gift. So this morning, don't confuse that. But why didn't Jesus take us to heaven right away? Because he had a design for what we will do with the rest of our life. That's what most of us in this room and probably most of us listening right now are living in. You have put your faith in Christ. You have taken to the free gift of the water of life. What's God's message to you? It's to obey him and to serve him. That's what it boils down to. Obey and serve. And what's the outcome of that? What he is saying here in verse 12 is that eternal rewards in heaven are earned. And so, just realize you are an eternal being, so you are living here now, but it's going to be you still living after you die. That's what eternal life is. And somehow what Jesus is saying is that he is going to reward the way you live now to enhance, if possible, the brilliance of living in heaven. So in heaven, you'll be enjoying Christ in heaven and personal rewards. Both are true. My reward is with me according to your works, verse 12. But whoever wishes drinks from the water of life without cost, verse 17. There is no contradiction. The reality is that we only have this little slice of time in which we can earn the approval, the appreciation, and even we will see today the praise of God for obeying and serving him in his power. And really that slice is already shortened because most of us have already been saved so that all we can look at is from today until the day we die or if if possible, the rapture of Christ. That's all we've got. Paul the Apostle puts together these two truths so well in, in, in a passage we often go to that we are saved by grace but accountable to do good works. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. What is it? A gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. I often uh, use that verse those two verses, just as a, as, a, as a complete package, because if I'm talking to somebody who has never put their faith in Christ, that's what you've got to know. 
We're saved by faith, not good works. Period. But there is another verse. And so for us as believers today, we've got to understand the next verse. And the next verse is telling us this. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a reason why Christ saved us and had a plan that he has for that slice of time until we go to be with him. It's to do good works. Very significant here is uh, that we are created in Christ Jesus. To be created in Christ Jesus, same term that Paul used when he says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The reason you can do good works is because you have been recreated. The only way we can do good works is because we have now been created in Christ Jesus. We can no more serve and obey Christ in our own power than we can be saved in our own power. Both are utterly dependent upon his working in us. Ephesians 1, 19 talks about the power that's working in us. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So as we think about good works today and earning eternal rewards, you can't even do that unless you had the power of God to do so. So he made us new, put us in his family to do good works. Anything in particular? Yes, it says it's the ones that God prepared in advance for us to do. And God is a God of us individually as well. And so two questions should be ringing in our ears as we continue reading, uh, reading Scripture today. The first is, what are the good works that God planned for me personally to do? As When he saved me, secured me, put me in his family forever, what are the good works that he planned for me to do? And secondly, do I believe that God's holding me accountable to do them? What are the good works, and am I accountable to do them? Let's say you have teenagers, and uh, they're now old enough. You don't have to have a babysitter when you leave. So you and your wife, you and your husband, you have a date planned, and you're gone for the evening, you're gone overnight, you're gone for a weekend, but you go, you know what, they, they're going to be all right. But part of your plan for them is that while you're gone, You've given them kind of a, a list of some things to get done. It, it'd, be good, it'd be good for them, be good for the family, um, for them to do these things. And so you have a, a little bit of a list of things to do. When you get back, do you think you'll check on them? Of course you will. And if you check on the list to see if they did what you asked them to do while you were gone, and if they did them, what are you going to say? Huh. I'm surprised. It's about time you start pulling your weight around here. Is that what you're going to say? I give you a lot more credit than that, okay? I, th I, think, I think you'd be a good and a gracious parent, and you would say, thank you. And, and I am so pleased, and you did a really good job, and I'm proud of you. You might even take him to Culver's. Just, Just... Rewarding them to do only the very things you've asked them to do. What is your picture of God? Is, is, the, is the God who saved you a grumpy, demanding, guilt-inducing father? Or is he a gracious rewarder? Hebrews 11, 5 and 6 says, He is a rewarder of those who earnestly or diligently seek him. Do you think God is pretty good 
at rewarding? Does this come out of his father heart? One of the things that gets in the way is we begin to think of rewards, like we always do, from our own perspective. What can I earn? What's God thinking? God's thinking, what do I want to reward? It's all a part of his grace when you look at it from his perspective. Now, we cannot do justice to the passages we look at. I I would suggest if you've got the outline there uh, at home or uh, in your bulletins here, that you'd almost like use it as a study guide for some future uh, study. But if you do, I warn you, it will transform your life if if you let it sink in. If you respond to these passages, your family will notice, your friends will notice, probably your enemies will notice. Be sure that God will notice that you have taken him so seriously about the works he has planned for you. Because we will be tested and rewarded when he returns. 1 Corinthians 3. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So it all starts with the grace of Jesus Christ. It's talking about the cross. It's talking about eternal life as a gift. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, now we've transitioned to the reward issue, good works issue. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest or or obvious because the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So there will be an evaluation. If the work that anyone has done, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So will we be accountable? Absolutely. Will we be rewarded? Absolutely. Because the day will disclose it. What day is that? It's the day when Jesus comes back. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to everyone according to what he has done. That's that day. In fact, do you realize how soon that is? Because as we've thought through prophecy, what has is, what is, what is hopefully penetrated our hearts is that could be today. We believe in the, in the imminent rapture. Christ could come back anytime. Amen. And this is exactly after that. So the accountability and the reward is like we're getting really close to that. The day will disclose it. If a fire swept through your house and you're gone gratefully. And in your house, you had those six different items you see in verse 12. Which ones would still be there when you get back after the fire dies down? You would find in the ashes gold, silver, and precious stones. You would not be able to recover the wood, hay, and the straw. It's gone. And that's the contrast between that which God can reward and that Christ can reward and that which he cannot. So essentially, it boils down to that which I did to please self only and that which I did to please Christ. Christ will review. Now, if we have mostly pursued selfish things after coming to faith in Christ, will we still be in heaven? What does it say? Yeah, 
you'll be saved. But as through fire. So what is lost? Not our salvation. What is lost is the rewards that could have been. What kind of works will be rewarded? Back to verse 11. Something that's on the foundation of Jesus Christ. The foundation of Jesus Christ is that he died for our sins on the cross. So is, is our, our, the works that he rewards are that which please the one who saved the world. So what are we doing that is important to Jesus who, who died to save the world? What are we doing that, that Christ asks us to do? Invest, care, pray, make disciples? Or have we been distracted by things that will not matter in heaven? Earth stuff. We have to be very careful as Christians not to be distracted by or consumed by things that Jesus never told us to do. Because there's so much that he has told us to do. And that needs to give us personal or corporate focus as well. So the question is, what will, what, will my works, will my life, and to what extent be burnt in the sense of wasted or rewarded? God's given us all time. He's given us all spiritual gifts. He's given us all resources, opportunities. The question is, am I using those to please Christ and enhance the things that he's emphasized, told us to do. This is not just about doing stuff at church. Um, first ministry is family ministry, okay? If you have a family, you, you need to minister, live obediently, serve one another. If you're a mom or dad with young children, welcome to children's ministry. Because that's what it is. And so you, 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 you earn, you feed, you clothe, you, you educate. Every responsible parent does that, but you do more. You, because you want to love and discipline like Christ to prepare them for living under Christ's authority. And, and you want to teach them God's word and principles and model Christ for them through all stages of life. So there's a whole lot more for you as a believer when you realize that you have a ministry to your family in that way. But in addition to family ministry, it's your ministry to others. Uh, sometimes people kind of a, kind of a cop-out say, well, my, my ministry is my family, and, and praise the Lord, that's your first ministry. But, but here's the thing. If, if every faithful Christian only served their family, what about all the people in the world that don't have a faithful Christian family? I mean, do the math. Who's going to do that? And so that's why God has given us gifts and talents and abilities and, and says, you figure it out, but I've given you many things to do to serve others as well. So our task is to discover what are the good works God planned for us. Now, what if it doesn't go as we planned? What if we, what if we you know, sincerely are pursuing to serve God with good works, but it doesn't go like I planned, and people don't want it, people don't appreciate it, people don't respond, then what? The very next passage, I, 
Paul hasn't really much changed subjects in, as you go from what the passage we just saw in 1 Corinthians 3 to this passage in 1 Corinthians 4. It is the Lord who judges me, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. This verse stands out to me all the time because I, I can't find any other word that says God praises us. But this is, this is that for which God praises us. And what is it? Is it our accomplishments? Or even effectiveness? It's our motives. Will you be judged on, on how many people you led to Christ? And will I be judged on how large Open Door Bible Church is? No. We'll be judged by the motives of our heart. So the second question, in addition to will my works be rewarded, is will God praise my motives or not? That's where the internal work is done. What's my motive? I hope this is uh, reassuring to you. If, you. if you feel that you're living with a spouse that doesn't respond to your love, if you're sharing the gospel with people who reject it, if you are serving people who don't thank you, it's very reassuring to realize that God sees it all. And so we can continue to, to refine our motives and know that he is saying, well done. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5 is another key passage because it says we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is talking about believers. So we, that's believers, make it our goal. Sorry, I advanced the slide here. Make it our goal to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, this little slice of time we have left, whether good or bad. Okay? The judgment seat, they, that's what they called where basically any judge sat, but one example of it is, is that the judges at athletic competitions like uh, near Corinth, at the Isthmian Games, kind of like our Olympics, that's where the, the judge would stand to, to award the winners of the events. And uh, like Olympics today, you know, you have the first, second, you know, gold, silver, bronze thing, and they don't punish those who didn't place. But they only award those who do. And that seems to be the contrast between the good and the bad is that which is award, rewardable and that which is, is not. Same, same picture we saw with the, the fire metaphor before. We'll all appear. So is the judgment seat like a real thing? Is this, is this interaction between us and Jesus after the rapture a real thing? You know, we've been studying prophecy. We've been saying the biblical principle is if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And that's why we believe that the rapture is real. Christ is really coming back. And we're going to be caught up together to be with him in the cloud forever. In the, meet him in the clouds and be forever with him in heaven. We believe in the rapture. We believe that the, the description of heaven is real. And we will really be in that new Jerusalem. So we need to understand that to be consistent, the judgment seat is real, isn't it? So this, this, is, this is our personal future. 
So as we think about our priorities or our behavior or our sin or our laziness or our attitudes or our efforts, it all matters. And we dare not live with kind of a, a shrug and say, well, I'm in. I'm going to heaven. Because it will all matter is what he's saying. Sometimes believers struggle with the concept of rewards or evaluation as being a bad motive. A, a, a secondary or, or a questionable motive. And, and so you hear people say, I just serve him because I love him. Okay. To the degree that's sincere, that's exactly the most foundational motive we should ever have. I, I don't know how many times we've tried to emphasize the best motive for serving Christ is responding to the love of Christ, the grace motive. Is this a contradiction to that? I, 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 as I read scripture, I realize it is not a mixed, it's not a matter of mixed motive. It's a matter of multiple motives. In fact, in the passage you were just in, we make it our goal to please him. That's, that's one motive. Because we're going to appear before the judgment seat, so that's another motive, accountability. And actually, let's, let, let's jump now to the next one, where this motive of God's grace. This is only a few verses later. That's exactly what our motive should be. For Christ's love compels us that those who live for him should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So gratefully responding to Christ's love and grace is the most foundational, ultimate goal. But pleasing him and and accountability and his promise of rewards are all part of the same relationship. If you're if your teen, when you leave and come back, does the chores that you assigned, and if they did it because you love them and they love you, that's, that's the most basic, that, that, that's the goal. But if they also did it because you know, they know you will be pleased, you'll be grateful, you will warmly approved, approve, and you've, you've been known to take them for culvers, <laughs> that's all good too. That's not a, that's not a contradiction. That's just part of a beautiful package of your relationship. These key passages, whether it's Revelation or 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, kind of lay out the promise and principles, but throughout the New Testament now, there there are just so many passages. I've I've selected some, and again, we can only touch these briefly in the coming 10, 15 minutes, but um, again, I trust that as we look through some of these verses, you will not... Think only of your desire for rewards, but God's desire to give them. God's desire to give them. He motivates us with rewards. So here's, here's one. We are rewarded for enduring persecution. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. In other words, you were doing it to please Christ. Whatever it was. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus sees it when we, we take a hit for him or insults or persecution. In fact, he says, if you are persecuted, you should be jumping for joy because your endurance of persecution is greatly rewarded in heaven. You take that to the extreme, the Peter and Paul 
who would, would die a martyr's death, or Stephen, Acts 7. They're not in heaven saying, boy, that was rough. In fact, if we understood what they were experiencing as a reward for those acts of enduring persecution, we should be jumping for joy at the prospect of persecution. That's how Jesus says it's just so radical. And sometimes it seems like we, we just are going to do absolutely everything we can to avoid persecution. And we begin to get uh, kind of consumed with the worst thing that can happen is persecution. And then Jesus says, what? Leap for joy. If you get rewards, you understand that concept, then you wouldn't worry about that. No, no one's going to desire it. He gets that too. Rewarded for helping those in need. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be, when? Repaid at the resurrection of the, rapt- of the righteous. So when's our resurrection day? It's the same as rapture day. So that could be very soon. And at that point, our pursuit of the, the best jobs, the best stuff, the best vacations, or the best anything won't matter. What will matter is that Jesus will pay attention to and smile and approve and reward when we have been serving those who can't repay us. Now, many of you have lived that way and served that way. Alongside that, we find that we are rewarded for sacrifices made for Christ. Uh, you could say in general, this is, this is the whole Christian life in one sense. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, that means a follower, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Why? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. We've been emphasizing that he's coming back on our poster, and we want to follow him who holds the future. If we're going to, that's a disciple. That's discipleship. That's, that's making disciples. Is we're going to follow Christ. It's going to mean sacrifice, where Jesus added later in Matthew, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, because of him, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Eternal life is free. You don't pay for an inheritance. So he's saying, you get both. You get eternal life inherited for free, but you're also going to receive a hundredfold for all those personal sacrifices. When we fall so in love with Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, and by his grace and for all the reasons we've seen, we serve him and sacrifice, we will never ever regret it because Jesus reviews those sacrifices. No one said thank you for those weeks upon weeks upon weeks you taught Sunday school. The times you stayed late to help the agnostic co-worker that you've been praying for and there never was a response. The checks you wrote out that only the secretary and maybe the church treasurer ever knew about. Jesus sees it all. Takes note of everything and jots it down. Hands it to an angel and says, reward this. Now, I'm not sure about the angel clerk thing, but I am sure that any sacrifice that we have made 
will be at least a hundredfold rewarded in heaven. So many of you, your name comes to mind, are those who have made sacrifices, who have helped those in need, who have lived for eternity. God sees it. Matthew 25, Jesus tells the uh, parable of the man who goes on a journey, the master who goes on a journey and leaves some money with three of his servants of different amounts and says, invest this for me. It's about stewardship, stewardship of life, not just about money. And he says, uh, go and uh, invest this for me. And then he, then he came back from the journey, and of course he checks on him. Two of the three had taken their amounts and doubled it so that somehow by their investment of research of what to invest in or maybe a, something they built or put elbow grease into it, they were able to double the money that the guy, that the master gave them. One of them took what the master gave him and buried it. So that's all he had. It hadn't done anything. Of course, it's a story that is to illustrate Jesus. And so what did the master say? Let's focus on the two that had invested well. The master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things and to the joy of your master. The two, two reward issues here are first, the approval of Christ. I can't, can't think of anything greater really than to be able to hear him say, well done. But then he also says, I'll put you in charge of many things. I, I know we're going to be busy in heaven. So I, if we're busy, it's got to be organized, even if it's perfect. And I don't know, somehow administrative, or is there leadership rewards in heaven? I don't know. There's a lot left unknown, but Jesus wanted to make sure we knew and would trust him to reward. As we think of, 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 of what lies ahead that is determined in the little slice we have left, and we're now about 30 minutes left, less left in our life than when we started this study. As we think about that, we have to think about what has God given us? Because we are only evaluated and or rewarded based on what he has given us, and not in comparison to others. Also, 1 Corinthians 3. The Lord has assigned to each his task. I I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. One purpose, different roles, rewarded based on what they have done with what they were given. For example... I know that we as pastors get more, we get, I don't know if we get more, but we get opportunities to share the gospel that you do not. But you know what? Very often the reason we get an opportunity to share the gospel is because you invited someone to church or invited someone to, to watch the broadcast or something like that, and they end up in our office. We're serving the same purpose. It's all for the gospel, and we are rewarded with the opportunities we have. And, and for others, it's it's... The, the sound of the media or the nursery or the 
whatever role that God assigns you, whether it's in church or outside of in the community, but it's what has God assigned you to do because you have opportunities that for sure we don't have here in the office. And you'll be rewarded by your labor, not compared to others. Crowns are the picture of rewards multiple times. What are the crowns about? Are we walking around with literal crowns? I just can't picture ourselves in heaven kind of bragging on my crown versus yours. I'm pretty sure it's not that. And I think, I think we have a really good clarifying passage. When, when, it, when, the, when the rewards are crowns, take a look at, at Revelation 4.10. We were there once uh, before. If you want to glance at it, you can while I, while I mention it. It says that the 24 elders around the throne, which I believe represent believers on earth, are going to take their throne, take their crowns, and cast them down at the feet of Jesus, like the last song that Nate led us in just before this. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. See, crowns are about honor. In the very next verse, after saying that we're going to put our crowns at his feet, say, worthy. Who is worthy? It's you are worthy to receive all glory and honor and power, not us. And so all that we do is not for our glory, but it contributes to his glory. And so it seems like the essence and the, and the ultimate purpose of rewards is that you and I can contribute more to his glory. Can you imagine God in all of his glory having that glory enhanced by the likes of us? But we contribute to his glory. So, what are some of these crowns? Rewarded for our disciplines or diligence. Do you, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a, re, a reward or a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. They had actually wreaths. These crowns were actually the, the, the plant-type flowery wreaths that they got instead of medals at our Olympics. They don't last. God's rewards do. Sometimes you read a sports bio, and, and uh, they'll tell you about, among other things, the training regimen that some of these athletes go through. And while we could, we could kind of be envious of their abilities and the applause and the money and so forth, we sometimes forget how hard they've worked to, to perform at the level they do, and we get to watch them laying on our couch with a bag of potato chips. Does God see your spiritual disciplines? Of course he does. Your investment in his word, your investment in the, the relationship, your investment in prayer. We, we are so guilty of evaluating prayer by results. God does not reward our prayer life based on results. Did it, did it ever occur to us that God will reward our prayer commitment regardless of results? There's the reward for perseverance in trials. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trials. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, 
that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Trials, check. Perseverance is the test. Trusting God as we endure, that's the hard part. And being willing to suffer somehow is combined with doing it out of our love for Christ. And God says, I see that. As I see people through the church family through the years suffering in so many different ways. But with perseverance, I can only imagine the reward. First Peter, rewarded for faithfully shepherding God's people. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You have elders that care about the whole body. They care, they serve, they teach, they lead, they pray for you. And they make tough decisions, like the one Seth referred to, decision made this past week. Trying to take into account everyone possible in the body, trying to apply biblical principles, and seeking unity over something difficult and controversial. That's hard work for Christ. And you should, I'm proud, I'm grateful for them, but you should honor them and follow them. But even if you don't, Christ will honor them and their service in heaven with the crown of glory. Paul described one more crown, which he mentioned as kind of his last words before he died. He says, I'm about to die. I'm a sacrifice about to die. And he said, I have fought a good fight, the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, crown of life, crown of glory, crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me. In other words, this is not a Paul thing because he's the superstar apostle. This is just as available to all who have longed for his appearing. And if I've sensed anything in these last months of studying this, we long for his appearing, don't we? I think this is Open Door Bible Church all over. We long for his appearing. And he's going to award us for our pursuit of holiness. The God who is holy and righteous is never more glorified than when we pursue what is most important to him. And so all those those inner struggles we have with thoughts and words and attitudes and actions and choices where we are battling and, and realizing we want to do the right thing for the right reason, God sees all of that and those private battles for purity and godliness and love and contentment and Fill in the blank with whatever scripture teaches us. All those private battles 
the righteous judge sees it and says, I like that. And he will not let it go unrewarded. This truth of rewards in no way contradicts, undermines, or erases the simplicity of the free gospel offer. Christ died for your sins, rose again. You can do nothing to earn that. Simply put your faith in Christ because he took care of all the sin that was keeping you from having entrance into heaven. Take of the water of life freely, but rest assured if you live in sacrificial gratitude for what he did on the cross, it'll be eternally worth it. Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Verse 12. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who, is, who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. These twin truths fit perfectly together. Verse 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. And all God's people said, Amen. Oh, Father, we can only begin to know your heart of grace that you would save us as a free gift if we just lean upon you, humbly acknowledging our empty thirst, complete inadequacy, and throw ourselves at the cross, at the foot of the cross, depending upon what you did for us. Thank you for the free gift. And then thank you for piling on with your desire, your gracious heart of wanting to reward us. And may we be so motivated by your love and your desires for us in eternity that we would serve you faithfully, whatever the cost. In Jesus' name, amen.